You are Locked On Bucks, your daily podcast on the Milwaukee Bucks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Backs him down. Giannis into the lane. Giannis spinning. Welcome to Locked on Bucks. I'm Eric Name, Milwaukee Bucks reporter at ESPN Wisconsin. Not joining me, as always, is my good friend Frank Madden. Frank is out tonight. Uh, a late scratch for him, but that's fine. I will take it. I will uh, ISO the the podcast, and that'll be totally fine. I will just go one-on-one with you, the listeners, We are going to get you ready for Game 5 coming up here tonight. Uh, The Bucks travel to Boston. You can find that game on NBA TV or Fox Sports Wisconsin. And I guess I wanted to talk about the game, but I believe most of the 24 hours today uh, were spent talking about Giannis not getting seated at Bel Air Cantina uh, downtown, which just seems utterly ridiculous to me um, because there's often a wait at restaurants and there's especially often a wait at restaurants downtown and especially after um, a number of events have happened downtown. So I I don't know, I guess I was also especially at dinner time. Those are all things that happen. So, um, I, again, just not a story I could ever care about. And I understand a lot of people got very, very excited about it and got themselves up in a tizzy, and I I don't get it. I, I can't imagine that ever mattering or meaning anything, um, especially when Giannis has said he's been there many times before. He knows the owners and totally understood. Also, um, Giannis isn't the type of guy that really would have enjoyed preferential treatment. I know other people have said like, oh, people uh, could have given up their seats. Like, Giannis wouldn't have done that. He would have thought it was ridiculous. Like, he's just someone waiting at a restaurant to eat. Um, Again, totally ridiculous topic, and I can't believe that we spent any portion of the day talking about it, but that's okay Um, because it sort of distracted us from – breaking down game five but that's okay we'll do that right now um looking at this game i think the biggest news coming into it is obviously the updated injury report on marcus smart marcus smart was upgraded from out to questionable uh coming into game five and i think the reason why it's interesting is because this is something that we had talked about on the podcast after game four was and i even made a joke about it I had thought we had reached a point where both of these teams knew each other. They knew what they were looking for offensively. They knew what they were looking for defensively. Uh, They knew the matchups that they were going to get most often. They knew how to counter those matchups. They knew how to combat those matchups. They had uh, both gotten physical with each other. Um, To me, it felt like they had kind of reached a point where 
you knew what you were getting and both sides were going to have to attempt to figure out exactly how they were going to get the best shots and uh, force the worst shots possible for the other team. Like It was just going to be about execution for the final three games. Who could ever execute better in two games would take this series. And now I feel like with Marcus Smart, essentially it's wildcard time, right? Like this is, this is, <laughs> this is Charlie and it's always sunny cutting the brakes and you're attempting to figure out exactly what's going to happen because I think people can argue a number of ways whether or not Marcus Smart makes you better because Marcus Smart is certainly a very talented basketball player and he's certainly uh, a, I think a talent upgrade in many ways uh, from some of the players that we've seen that the Celtics use this series. The one thing that we talked about going into this series was that the Celtics simply didn't have enough talent. No matter how you try to slice it, they didn't have that top-level talent with Irving out, with Hayward out, and again, to a lesser extent, with Smart out. And Smart isn't going to be that that sterling individual creator um, that we've been talking about that the Celtics don't have. He's not going to be the one that goes one-on-one. His shooting struggles are well-documented. And I think you know just watching him that that's probably not going to be the way that he's going to impact the game. But also, when when you're regularly playing a, a ton of... A ton of Shane Larkin, a ton of Semi Ojale, a ton of Yabusele. Uh, like you're playing a lot of these other guys that may not get in. And I mean, even in in Game Four, we saw 12 minutes of Abdel Nader. Like you're removing those minutes, and even if Smart isn't at his fullest capabilities, or even if Smart isn't uh, the best offensive player, I think you can get some contribution from him in that regard. So we'll see if he plays. Um, but if he does play, I think that that kind of messes with things a little bit because defensively that Celtics team has another person that they can try to throw at the Bucks, And um, I don't think he'd be the guy to throw at Giannis, obviously, but Chris Middleton has been a flamethrower, uh, a, a, <laughs> a human flamethrower for pretty much the entirety of this series. And when you look at what he's done, no one has really made him uncomfortable. And uh, I mentioned this on Twitter the other day. I've tried these last couple games to try to get Chris to explain exactly the zone that he's in because he's shooting 60% from the field. He's shooting 62% from three. Uh, Matt Moore tweeted out his shot chart and it's, green the entirety of half court whether it's at the rim mid-range uh corner threes above the break threes all of it is green and that is plus 10 percentage points better than what it would be in the regular season and it's the darkest green possible like it is the greenest you could ever have a shooting chart and to me a guy like tatum who it has some length and has shown a number of things. I don't think necessarily challenges Middleton. And you look at a guy like Jalen Brown, very strong, but Middleton has not felt the pressure there. He's largely been able to get to his spots. And 
we talked about him uh, in game four, breaking out some Kevin McHale moves and, and going with some uh, some pivot action and some pump fake action and uh, some crafty scoring. And they no one on that Celtics team really has an answer for him. And then we've seen the Bucks get switches. We've seen him take Terry Rozier to the post. We've seen him take Shane Larkin to the post. Like, there just isn't a great matchup for him, or there hasn't been to this point in this series. And I think part of part of my concern with adding Marcus Smart would be, is he that guy? Is he the guy that can actually make it tough on Chris Middleton? And I just don't know if we know, just because Smart is so physical. Uh, and he's one of those guys, uh, just like the Bucks have Delhi, Smart is, is their guy where you love to have him on your team but hate playing against him, and you don't know. Maybe he can mix it up, and Chris Middleton is certainly a guy who is susceptible to trying to search out fouls. We've seen him do that a number of times where he'll get a defender on his hip, uh, the Bucks will run like a, a pick and roll, he'll get that guy on his hip, and then he'll try to get the call from that guy reaching over the top or bumping him as he goes up for a shot. And there'll be games where he doesn't get that call, but he still searches out that call. And there's just a number of wasted possessions. We haven't seen that yet in this series. We have seen that throughout this season. So I think throwing Marcus Smart into that kind of makes me wonder whether or not that could have an effect on Chris Middleton. And, um, with the way that he's played, that that would be huge because he's been so consistent. Giannis has been so consistent to lose one of the two pillars for the Bucks. I mean, I think could be catastrophic in, in one of these games just because I don't know who steps into that void. I don't know who fills that hole. Um, I don't know who's able to make up for him potentially not being that same guy. So I think that makes Marcus Smart very interesting. I don't know. Like I said, one, I don't know if he plays. And two, I don't know if he's effective. Uh, a friend of the podcast, Dean Maniot, at All the Bucks, had mentioned it earlier today and said that, you know, he, he for one, would welcome Marcus Smart back into the Celtics rotation. And uh, as he kind of went through the numbers, uh, the big thing would be that he's not helping out the offense any. That the, the Celtics with Smart and without Kyrie Irving, have an offensive rating of 99.7 for the season, which if you're not 100% sure uh, on offensive rating what uh, a good number per 100 points per possession is, um, 99.7 is bad, really bad. And if you would have an offense flounder in that way, I mean, obviously that'd be very good for this Bucks team as largely in this series – the games that they've had success in, the Bucks have outscored the Celtics and outscored them by a pretty significant margin and scored at a very successful level. Um, I, I shouldn't say outscored the Celtics. Of course, they outscored the Celtics and wins. But what I mean is they've played very well offensively. And in playing very well offensively, the Celtics just have struggled to attempt to uh, get to that same spot because they don't have those individual creators. They don't have those guys that can score easily um, and efficiently like the Bucks have had in a guy like Middleton and a guy like Giannis. So 
I think it could get very interesting with Smart. I'm not 100% sure which way it goes, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. I think you can see kind of the ways in which it would be a good thing or a bad thing. Obviously, a bad thing for the Celtics would be he comes back. He's not able to make a huge impact defensively. The Bucks are still able to get into their spots. The Bucks are still comfortable uh, going against the Celtics offensively. Uh, and then the Celtics offensively can't get anything more going and maybe even get stifled a little bit more because Marcus Smart is out there. Maybe uh, he doesn't just make the pass and instead he does ISO. And we talked about it after the last game that Brad Stevens thought that it was a that's been a problem that they aren't moving the ball with and they need to. And Giannis has said the same thing that when they are switching, they're able to get the Celtics to play a little bit more ISO basketball. If, if smart has a game where he's not deciding to keep the ball moving and he's not taking uh, those open shots. And instead there are those record scratch three point shot moments. Well, then maybe the Celtics struggle offensively. On the other hand, I think you can see, like I said, very clearly the good part of this would be if they can somehow get Chris Middleton out of rhythm. I think that would just be huge if Marcus Smart could somehow uh, just bother Chris Middleton to an extent where, again, I don't think you expect him to shoot 60% for the entirety of this series. That that would be kind of crazy. But I don't, for the Bucks, if if all of a sudden Smart's able to limit Middleton to a 30% shooting night, like that's it would be very significant for for this Bucks team because I don't know how they would react to that. So uh, I think you can see both sides of it. We'll see if he does play, and also we'll see if he does end up having an impact because, um, like I said, I think this kind of throws – it just throws a new variable into the mix. And at this point of a series, that can be – just kind of a, a weird thing for these teams to deal with. You normally get to the second half of game three in a series that's 2-1. You get to that second half, and you know each other. You know what you're trying to do. Uh, so after a game four split at 2-2, you throw someone new into the mix. It, it's going to be crazy to kind of see exactly how that might affect, affect things. So we'll see what happens there. All right, other thing I wanted to talk about was obviously in games three and four, Bucks bench comes alive. Huge, huge contributions from Javari Parker, from Thon Maker, from Matthew Dellavedova. All three of those guys have huge games at home in Milwaukee. And one thing that often gets talked about in the playoffs and I guess it's a more general NBA maxim, but in the playoffs specifically, we talk about it because you get to kind of see it play out over seven games, but it's the idea that role players play better at home. Like no matter, doesn't matter which role player it is. It doesn't matter what team they play for, what arena they're playing in. It's just role players play better at home. And I thought it was interesting to see. I didn't see this last summer, uh, but it got tweeted out uh, again today because of people talking about that idea. Kevin Pelton at ESPN actually did a mailbag last June where someone asked a similar question. And he was asked that question um, 
when it came to the NBA Finals and kind of Cleveland's guys and how they've been so effective at home and not effective on the road. And he was asked, do role players actually have that, that does that affect play into how they play? And it was interesting. His response was that the problem in thinking role players play better at home is thinking that role players are different than anyone else. Because he said, largely the evidence shows that everyone plays better at home. Like whether it's role players, stars, all-stars, superstars, uh, however you want to look at it, everyone tends to play better at home. So I guess what that means in this series is you should probably expect not quite as good performances from some of those guys, which to me is is really, it could end up being significant. And uh, obviously to get a larger sample size, you're going to have to average some things out and that can be different in any given series that, you know, some guys are outlier performances and then in the average you get down to where you need to be. Um, But for, for the, the large portion uh, of playoff basketball, it's, just that you know the the best players are gonna get a, a bump at home, and the worst players are gonna get a bump at home. But for the worst players, Pelton found that it's significant because they're dropping from a, a level of fine production, which is good and, and can help, to a level of production that would be below like replacement level. So essentially, you're not getting enough from them on the road and they're not playing as well just like everyone else on the floor but because their bar is lower and their performance level is lower that you're you're gonna feel that impact more because they're actively moving from the line that would say that they're above to the line where they're below while star players may move from a line that says they're way above to a line that says they're still way above, but not quite as way above. So um, it, it can be kind of difficult to think about, but in this series, I just think it's so important because as much as you want to talk about Giannis and Chris being good, they're the guys that have been steady. They are the guys that have played well throughout this series. And really what has swung the two Bucks home games have been, I mean, I mentioned it yesterday, number one is Thawmaker. Thawmaker has been fantastic in the two games in Milwaukee, didn't play in the games of Boston. So, I mean, technically, we don't really even have a sample for what bad what bad Thon might look like in this series. We don't have an idea of what road Thon might look like in this series. We just don't know. And I think that'll be really interesting to watch because – he was so big for them. And then the same thing, Jabari Parker was huge at home. He had that great game three. He had the best half of his life, or yeah, the best half of his life in game four in the first half. And I mean, I just think that all of that can really contribute to whether or not the Bucks can win this, win this game five in the end. And, and we're at a spot where you don't need me to tell you how important this is. And I won't tell you that whatever percent of teams that win 
game five when it's tied at two two go on to win the series i think you can figure out the math for yourself but what i will mention is jacob goldstein someone that we've mentioned throughout the playoffs has a updated projection for uh the bucks and celtic series and after the bucks won that game it's a 46 percent chance that the bucks win and a 54 percent chance that the celtics win so this this entire series has now is now essentially a coin flip which team can play better in these last couple games and the contributions of someone just playing slightly better on on their home floor as as opposed to just slightly worse on the road is huge it if you all of a sudden you see the Celtics get a bigger contribution out of a guy like Marcus Morris, Morris was four of fourteen for thirteen points in Game Four. If all of a sudden in Game Five he hits three more of those shots or he hits the final shot, um, I think you're kind of in a spot where uh, the Celtics get that little boost and things swing in their direction. So I just think. It's something, the idea that role players play better at home that is very prevalent and always thought of something that will kind of swing the series, but at the same time, it's something that pretty much all players go through in the playoffs. And again, if you want to find that article, it's Kevin Pelton, uh, Playoff Mailbag, Do Role Players Play Better at Home in the Playoffs? So uh, you can check that out if you're interested at all in that. Okay, now for Game 5 stuff that that I'm looking on that maybe might not be bigger picture stuff, but stuff that I'm thinking about heading into this game. And I think the, the big one is Celtics adjustments. How do they try to minimize the impact that Thonmaker is having on this series? Because he didn't do anything in the first two games. He didn't even play in the first two games. Then in games three and games four, he comes out, he makes a huge impact, he totally shifts the way that the Celtics are are trying to score, Um, or maybe they didn't totally shift that, but he totally blows up the way that they were trying to score and the way that they were trying uh, to run productive offense. So there's only so much this Celtics team can do. They have limited playmakers, and... There's been some incredible shot making from Jalen Brown, from Jason Tatum, uh, from Marcus Morris. All three of those guys take tough shots and make tough shots. But the way that the Celtics get easy baskets was limited from what they were getting in game two. In games three and games four, the Bucks blew up the, any of the easy handoff action they had, uh, the dribble weave action that they had, the middle pick and roll action that they had. The Bucks blew up all of that. And uh, the thing to focus on to me is watch inside the lane lines. Like it, not in the actual lane, but if you just draw the lane lines all the way up and down the floor, watch inside those areas because that's really the spots where the Celtics can puncture the defense and and can puncture what the Bucks are doing. And maybe you want to bump that out to like above the break and when I'm t- on the three-point line where the break occurs or it goes from a straight line to an arc, like maybe even inside there, but just look at that area because 
that to me was was the big thing. Game one, the Celtics throw almost 400 passes, and it was just them moving the ball around the outside, not really able to get anything going. Brad Stevens schemes this up. They're able to get something going in the middle of the floor. They're able to puncture the Bucks' defense. Um, so really, for me, that's that's kind of what I I watch to start games, and whether or not the Bucks are switching on Terry Rozier or what they're doing, and um, that brings me to another point. Eric Bledsoe is someone someone to watch. I know I was talking to Dean about this today. In that second half of Game Four, Bledsoe struggled with switching and with making sure that his assignments were executed. And this is, I mean, this is kind of something that we've talked about with Eric Bledsoe throughout the year. That there are, are times with individual brilliance from him defensively, uh, but there are times where he kind of just loses track. He's not able to uh, execute assignments. He maybe loses focus. Whatever the reasons may be for him doing it, the the fact is that he at times does not execute his assignments and. One thing that we've seen in games three and games four from this Bucks team is an ability to execute assignments, which has largely not existed in Milwaukee throughout this series, this entire season. They've always had those lapses. They've always had those problems. Uh, they've rarely moved on a string, and we've seen some, uh, honestly, some incredible defense from this Bucks team. Uh, switches early switches uh switching multiple actions like the the dribble weave that uh the celtics were running that's a switch onto a switch onto a switch and the bucks executed that seamlessly in times in milwaukee and uh, to me you have to you have to see if the bucks are capable of that and the biggest test is when Bledsoe's on the floor because there is there are t- moments with Bledsoe where, again, I don't know if it's elapsed mentally or if it's uh, just kind of his ego in thinking, I can stop Terry Rozier. I don't need to switch. Why are you asking me to switch? And I, I thought in the third quarter, in the second half, that that kind of got to Bledsoe. He, he didn't execute switches uh, he was uh, just trying to go through screens and again in those first two games of the series I mentioned Eric Bledsoe dying on screens now if he's able to avoid that in games five I think the Bucks are going to get off to a strong start but if he is dying on those screens if he is unable to execute the things that he needs to get done obviously you're going to see the Bucks struggle early and then maybe need a bump from Delhi, which is never the spot you want to be in. You want to be surviving when the bench units are out there, not actively needing to thrive. So uh, I, I think that is something that I watch. Another thing I'm watching, Celtics are making it tough on Giannis. There, there's, there's no two ways about it. They understand how important he is, and they are making it incredibly tough on him. And here in the postseason, he's been averaging 27.8 points per game, 8.5 rebounds per game, 6.5 assists per game, 1.5 steals, uh, and just under a block per game. So he's he's been about pretty much what you expect from Giannis uh, 
which is always a good thing to see. But at the same time, it hasn't been the the crazy explosions, 40-point games. And honestly, it may just not be in the cards against the Celtics. The Celtics don't have someone that can stop Giannis. And I've said this throughout our previews and our podcasts as we've gone along and the stuff I've written about. Like Al Horford is a toughish matchup for for Giannis he he's someone that has size he does have some speed but I mean you saw Giannis baptize him at, at the rim in game four he's someone that Giannis can get by and can finish through uh so there there isn't stopping him and I don't think you're gonna see a game like Giannis has had against the Miami Heat this year where he, j- he just can't even get shots off because the Celtics don't have that combination. Like, if you're actually trying to stop Giannis, you need a strong, active wing defender. You need a guy at the rim that can block shots. And then you probably need some other guys that can help zone up and be really strong. And then on top of all that, you need a good scheme defensively. So a team like the Heat that has James Johnson, uh, that has Hassan Whiteside backside, that has some of those other pesky defenders around and is coached by Eric Spolstra, that checks off all of those boxes. And they're able to essentially, I mean, better than anyone else can do it, shut down Giannis. The Celtics don't have those things. They're incredibly well-schemed, but they don't have that wing defender. And with adding Marcus Smart, if he does play in Game 5 or if he comes back in the series, he's not that guy either. He's uh, he's a little bit too small for Giannis, and Giannis would be just fine against him like he would be just fine against Tatum or just fine against Jalen Brown. So that wouldn't be the problem. It's just that the Celtics make it incredibly tough on Giannis in that he can get his shots, he can get to the rim, but he is going to work for all of them. And the big thing to me is in games three and games four, and throughout the series they've done a nice job with this, uh, but they're they're switching. And they have guys that can switch on to Giannis, and then Giannis has kind of seen a wall. And, and again, none of those individual guys can stop Giannis. If it was a game of one-on-one, Giannis would take it to him every single time. But in switching, they don't give Giannis a corner to turn. So if he has the ball in his hands, he can't turn the corner and get to the basket and beat someone. He will just see a defender waiting for him and then three other help defenders and someone on the backside or maybe even four, all four defenders. Uh, So The Celtics do a really nice job always showing him bodies, which, again, won't stop him. It'll just make it tough and maybe keep him from getting loose for a 40-point game uh, and instead keeping it in the, you know, 25 to 33-ish range, which, if you're the Celtics, you can probably live with. So I think that's going to be interesting to see because I think at times during... Game four, you could see Giannis get a little bit frustrated with it. You could see him uh, settle for the jumper at times. And again, at home in Milwaukee, he hit some threes and they were able to get him some some good open looks. But also at the same time, he he missed some of those mid-range jumpers. Uh, and he 
wasn't able to find a good offensive flow. So I, I think that's going to be really interesting in Game Five uh, because Game Five is one of those one of those spots. These are all do or die games, but everyone knows just how important Game Five is. Everyone knows what they're working with. Both teams have turned up the physicality, and I want to say that's one thing that I thought I was probably impressed with in Game Four from the Bucks was. In Game 3, they came out and they hit the Celtics in the mouth. Celtics, maybe they weren't 100% sure the Bucks were actually able to bring that, but they did, and they took it to the Celtics in Game 3. Game 4, Celtics came out. They turned their physicality up a little bit, and it's it was interesting watching the Western Conference playoffs tonight, uh, watching this Jazz Thunder game. You could see the Thunder knew they needed to try to turn up the physicality, and the Jazz were just like, eh, okay, that's fine. And just played right through them, finished them, uh, and now they're up 3-1. And these two teams are more evenly matched than those two teams. Uh, but it, it was just uh, the Thunder couldn't sustain that. Then it turned into cheap fouls and trying to punk guys. And that didn't happen in Game 4 with the Bucks. They... They took that added physicality, and then they added a little bit more themselves, and then those two teams got to a stalemate. Maybe the Thunder weren't quite up to that task with the Jazz, but uh, I think going into Game 5, it's going to be fun to watch because uh, Marcus Smart is an interesting adjustment, but outside of that, I think everyone kind of knows what they have here. So we'll have to see uh, what happens tonight in that Celtics-Bucks matchup. I think I've hit on everything I wanted to talk about. I wanted to mention uh, just how hot Chris Middleton has been in this playoffs. I did that. I wanted to talk a little bit about how good Giannis has been uh, despite the stellar job that the Celtics have done in making that tough room. I wanted to talk about role players and whether or not they are better uh, at home. And again, we'll see. Uh, you know, you can't really control for the, the smaller sample size of a single playoff series, but we'll see if that plays an impact. Uh, wanted to talk about Marcus Smart and whether or not uh, he does anything, uh, whether or not he plays, and we'll have to see if he does, um, but to see if he has an impact. And, you know, just want to talk about the Bucks bench. And uh, I think I think we're in for a good one. I'm excited about it. I hope you're excited about it. Uh, sorry that we couldn't get Frank in here today, but you just had to deal with me. Uh, hopefully you found this interesting, and I, hopefully I gave you some things to be looking for uh, as this one uh, gets close. One last thing I wanted to add. We don't know with John Henson, if John Henson will be back, we don't know if he's playing or not. Um, as I said after our post-game four podcast, if he is playing, I think Tyler Zeller minutes have to go. Um, I just don't see bumping Thon out of the rotation. He's just been so good in games three and games four and been such a difference maker that uh, if anyone has to go, um, it would have to be Tyler Zeller just because he, he's been getting hurt. He's getting beat up a little bit on the boards. Um, he's not obviously uh, he doesn't have as quick as quick of feet um he doesn't block quite as many shots uh, despite having a couple at the start of that game against the Celtics in game 4 so um that would be what i would say but we'll have to again we'll have to see we a, a lot we don't know um 
going into this game five as uh, we don't know if Henson or Smart will play and how any of that would affect either team. So we'll find all of that out tonight. After the game, it'll be me and Frank once again bringing you everything, breaking it down, and seeing if the Bucks are in a great spot to close it out in Bucks and Six style or if they're going to need to save one in Game 6 and keep the season alive and force a Game 7. So we will talk to you after the game. For Frank Madden, I'm Eric Name. This has been Lockdown Bucks. We'll talk to you after Game 5.